Once upon a time, ships of war were made out of wood, but lumber was no match for cannonballs and explosive devices. Lumber broke easy, burned, and sent deadly splinters in all directions. During the American Civil War, two ships covered with iron, called ironclads, were constructed. They would meet and battle it out. Today we have the story of the Battle of Hampton Roads on the 143rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, one coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Good morning, it's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I'm so glad you're with me today. How's the coffee tasting? Oh, don't don't bother to answer, I really can't hear you. But anyway, today's story is a longish one, so I'll get into it right away. First, however, I need to thank the Fries, Gordon and Nancy, from the History Files and other podcasts. Since this episode is about the Civil War, I knew Gordon was the person I should turn to. He sent me a wonderful long response. I only say long because I couldn't use all the information for today's show, so I'm going to put a link to his email in the show notes for this episode if you want to read what he had to say. It's very interesting. But one has to feel sorry for Gordon now, because now that I know he's willing to answer my questions, I might become quite the pest. But here in Chicagoland, we've had some strange weather. Cold one day, snow the next, then 50 degrees the following. Tuesday, I was shoveling snow, and today, I can go out with a light jacket. Weird. But I've got a hot cup of coffee, and I'm ready to tell the tale of the first two American ironclad ships battling it out. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Throughout the North, rumors spread quickly about the Confederate's iron monster and panic began to build. The northern newspapers were full of accounts of the building of this dreadful iron behemoth down south. The great fear in the north was that this vessel would somehow steam up the Atlantic, steam up the Potomac, bombard Washington itself, wreak havoc all the way up and down the east coast. The Union set out to create its own ironclad to counter the southern menace. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells established a board to field proposals for the new ship. In the end, they got 17 designs, uh, several of them impractical. But it came down to two or three basic designs that appeared to have the most promise. Between the days of April 12, 1861 and May 9, 1865, the United States of America was involved in a bloody civil war, North versus South, fighting due to the long-standing controversy over slavery. Now I know some people will debate over the true cause of the war, but the cause of the war has nothing to do with our story today. The fact is, there was a war, a horrible, bloody war, and part of that battle was the first war between two ironclad ships. While most of the stories of the Civil War seem to be about what was happening with the ground troops, 
After all, both armies were on the same continent. Battle for seaports were also hugely important. Imports and exports were vital to commerce, and by cutting off access to the sea, one could cripple the enemy. Because of this, at the start of the war, the Confederates quickly created a Department of the Navy. The problem, however, was they didn't have any ships. When Virginia succeeded from the Union, the U.S. Naval Yard at Gosport, Virginia, which today is the Norfolk Naval Shipyard, was taken over by the South. Before the Union was forced to leave, they took everything they could, but what they couldn't take they burned as to not allow it to fall into Confederate hands. And one thing they burned was the USS Merrimack. The Merrimack, launched in 1855, was a frigate with steam power and a propeller. But by the time of the Civil War, its steam engines were already outdated. It was docked at Gosport when the war began and could not leave because the Confederates had sunk light boats in the channel that it would need to use to leave. Therefore, it was torched and sunk. The South, desperate to have a navy, was able to raise the ship, and fortunately for them, its lower hull and machinery were discovered to be undamaged. Soon after being towed to dry dock, the Confederate Secretary of the Navy, Stephen Mallory, decided to convert the Merrimack into an ironclad. At the time, ironclad ships had been in development in Britain and France, and Mallory had been following this closely. He could see their potential for the Federate cause. He said, I regard the possession of an iron-armored ship as a matter of first necessity. Such a vessel at this time could traverse the entire coast of the United States, prevent all blockades, and encounter with a fair prospect of success their entire navy. The ship was covered with 1-2 to two inch thick, 8 inch wide iron plates sloping at a 36 degree angle. The sloping of 36 degrees on its side was the perfect way for deflecting enemy fire. It had 10 guns, 4 on each side and 2 that can pivot on the ends. But besides her gun power, the CSS Virginia also had an iron ram on her bow, or a beak as it was called, that would allow the ship itself to become a deadly weapon. It was located just below the waterline, so the enemy wouldn't see it coming. Ramming a wooden ship at full speed would sink the ship almost instantaneously. It was important for the Confederate South to do something quickly because, as soon as the war began, U.S. President Abraham Lincoln ordered a blockade against the southern ports and the 3,500 miles of coastline. While it sounded like a great idea to keep the South from importing goods, from things such as wool cloth and shoes to muskets, cannons, and gunpowder, all the goods European contractors were happy to supply, in reality, a complete blockade was impossible. The U.S. Navy wasn't all that much better than the South's. The U.S. had put some money into their Navy during the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 1847, but by the time of the Civil War, most of the ships they had were considered deplorable. They used what ships were available to blockade the ports at Hampton Roads. There had been earlier attempts for the United States Navy to build ironclad ships before the Civil War broke out, but most went unfinished. When the North learned that day and night work was going on at Godsport to create a Confederate ironclad, the decision was made to create one of their own. Congress appropriated $1.5 million on August 3, 1861 to build one or more armored steamships. 
Many designs were put forth, but in the end, they chose one of the most radical designs presented, the one of Swedish engineer and inventor John Ericsson called the USS Monitor. The USS Monitor, which was a lot smaller than the Virginia, looked sort of like a submarine that had surfaced. Its deck was only about 18 inches above the waterline. The idea, of course, was to give the enemy the smallest possible target. But what was unique about the Monitor, however, was it only had two cannons rather than the 10 of the Virginia. They were in a circular gun turret in the center that could be spun around in any direction. Due to its strange appearance, it would be known as Erickson's Folly, Cheesebox on a Raft, or the Yankee Cheesebox. Any one of a dozen weird names. It was such a bizarre design that there was little confidence in the public that it would sail. People lined the waterways on its launch and assumed it would sink as soon as it hit the water. But on March 30, 1862, at Greenpoint, New York, the monitor slid down the ramp into the water and sailed just as Erickson said it would. Commanding the ship was Lieutenant John L. Warden, a veteran of the U.S. Navy since 1834. On February 20th, 1862, he received his orders from the Secretary of the Navy. Proceed with the U.S. Steamer Monitor under your command to Hampton Roads, Virginia. On board the little ship were 59 men. On March 8th, the SCC Virginia left the Naval Yard at Godsport on its maiden voyage with the whole city of Virginia cheering it on with the hopes that it would be the answer to the Union's great superiority in conventional warships. The crew of the Virginia was 350 men who quickly discovered that the ship was slow and hard to steer. The steam engines from the original Merrimack were not very good to begin with, and with all that iron, it made it even worse. The Virginia slowly headed towards Hampton Roads. There are several variations to what Wooden told his men for inspiration, but the most famous goes like this. Sailors, in a few minutes you'll have the long-expected opportunity to show your devotion to our cause. Remember, you are to strike for your country, for your homes, for your wife and your children. Hampton Roads was one of the world's largest natural harbors, located in Virginia where the Elizabeth and Nasman Rivers met the James River just before it entered Chesapeake Bay adjacent to the city of Norfolk. The Union had it blockaded, and the Confederates wanted that blockade removed. Franklin Buchanan, a man who had previously served in the United States Navy for 45 years, commanded the CSS Virginia. How he got there is sort of interesting. When the Civil War broke out, he expected his home state of Maryland to succeed as well, so he resigned from the U.S. Navy. When he found out that Maryland had no plans to leave the Union he asked to be reinstated. The U.S. Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, refused, saying that he didn't want a half-hearted patriot in his Navy. So on September 5, 1861, Franklin Buchanan joined the Confederate Navy and was given a captain's commission. I'm going to pause my story for a second to tell you about something that historian Gordon Fry let me know about that I found interesting about the war. When it began and I'm reading directly from Gordon's email, a majority of the officers of the pre-war United States Navy resigned their commission and went south. This led to a problem for the south of having 
a lot of senior officers with nothing to do. While in the U.S. Navy, there were a lot of junior officers who were given the opportunity of a lifetime to rise in rank quickly. Most of the senior officers of the Confederate States Navy were formerly senior United States officers, while a large number of senior United States Navy officers were formerly United States Navy junior officers. Interestingly, of course, young men trying to make a name for themselves tend to do more outrageous things than old men trying to fight a defensive war. Anyway, back to our story. Caspi App Roger Jones was from Virginia, and like Buchanan, resigned his U.S. Navy commission soon after the war began. He joined the Confederate Navy and soon thereafter became a Confederate Navy lieutenant. He was involved with converting the Merrimack into the Virginia and was hoping to be her commander. When Bookman was named the ironclad ship's captain, he stayed on as the ship's executive officer. When the U.S. Virginia arrived at Hampton Roads, she was ready and willing to deal with the blockade, specifically the four main ships blocking the harbor, the Cumberland, the Congress, the Roanoke, and the Minnesota, all powerful but wooden ships. As the Virginia began to get close to the Union fleet, the ships began to fire but did little damage to the ironclad. The Virginia fired back, but that wasn't really what it had in mind. Buchanan aimed the Virginia right at the USS Cumberland. The Virginia kept firing, causing horrible death and destruction as she got closer. Charles O'Neill, a crewman on the Cumberland, later wrote, The shots and shells from the Merrimack crashed through the wooden sides of the Cumberland as if they were made of paper, carrying huge splinters with them and dealing death and destruction at every hand. The once clean and beautiful deck was slippery with blood, blackened with powder, and looked like a slaughterhouse. The Virginia kept on coming, eventually ramming the Cumberland with its iron ram. The Cumberland quickly began to sink. The battle almost ended there as Virginia's ram got stuck in the Cumberland, and the two almost went down together. It is thought that the Virginia was stuck right below one of Cumberland's anchors, and if that anchor had fallen, it would probably have been the end of the Virginia. Eventually, though, the Virginia was able to break free. 121 men went down with the Cumberland, making its death toll around 150. The Virginia lost two men, and eight were wounded. The Virginia did suffer heavy damage during that battle, and even lost its ram. The next ship it took aim at was the USS Congress. From what the Congress had seen with the Cumberland, the captain thought it was best to take the ship into shallow waters. By this time, the James River Squadron, a squadron of the Virginia Navy, joined the battle. After about an hour of trading fire, Lieutenant Joseph B. Smith, captain of the Congress, surrendered. As the men on the Congress were being ferried off, a Union battery on the shore began firing at the Virginia. Buchanan ordered hot shots, which were cannonballs heated red-hot, to be used against the Congress. The wooden ship caught fire and burned for the rest of the day. That night, the fire would reach her magazine and she exploded and sank. About 121 Union men were dead. The Virginia didn't suffer much more damage from its battle with the Congress, except her smokestack was damaged, causing her slow speed to get even slower. Two more men were dead, 
and Captain Buckman took a bullet through the left thigh, so Caspi Ap Roger Jones took command. Jones picked the Minnesota as his next target. Unfortunately for the Minnesota, in her panic to get away, she ran aground and was stuck. Fortunately for the ship, night was falling, and Catsby Jones thought it would be better to back off, tend to its wounds and the Virginia's damage, and deal with the Minnesota in the morning. Now, during all that time that the USS Virginia was causing horror and destruction to the Union fleet, the USS Monitor was on its way. Through the night, it headed towards Hampton Roads. But the Monitor was having problems. It had gone through some bad weather, and and being so low to the water's edge, it took on a lot of water, extinguishing the boiler fires. At times, the Monitor was in danger of sinking, but at 9 p.m., it made its way into Hampton Roads. The first thing the crew noticed was the burning Congress. The thought of both huge ships, the Congress and the Cumberland, being destroyed, and all the brave men that was lost, filled the men with a need for vengeance. On the morning of March 9th, the CSS Virginia returned, Catsby Jones figuring that dealing with the grounded Minnesota was going to be easy. As they approached, they saw something in front of her, something one of the crewmen called the strangest thing he had ever seen. A crewman from the USS Patrick Henry said, Such a craft the eyes of a seaman never looked upon before, an immense shingle floating in the water with a gigantic cheese box rising in the center. No sails, no wheels, no smokestack, no guns. What could it be? At first sight, some thought it was a boiler being removed from the Minnesota, and then the USS Monitor began to fire. Even then, some thought the shot was the boiler exploding. Both ships moved closer to one another, the men of the Monitor wondering how their new iron ship would handle the gunfire. USS Monitor crewman William Keeler later wrote to his wife, I experienced a peculiar sensation, he confessed. I do not think it was fear, but it was different from anything I knew before. We were enclosed in what was supposed to be an impenetrable armor. We knew that a powerful foe was about to meet us. Ours was an untried experiment, and our enemy's first fire might make it a coffin for all of us. Everyone has his post, fixed like a statue. The most profound silence reigned. If there had been a coward's heart there, its throb would have been audible. So intense was the stillness. The two ironclad ships began to fire on one another, neither ship being able to do much damage to the other. The smaller monitor had an advantage over the Virginia and her engines. She could run circles around the slow-moving Virginia. And for the Virginia to aim its guns, the whole slow-moving ship had to be moved. While the Monitor had the circular gun turret, they could move around without moving the ship at all. The ships would sometimes come within a few yards from one another, firing their guns as fast as possible. The Virginia's iron plates were beginning to crack, the wooden back splintering. The only damage to the Monitor was a denting in its turret. One man on the Virginia later said, we saw our shells burst into fragments against her turret. I found that I could do the monitor as much damage to her by snapping my fingers every five minutes. In both ships, conditions inside were horrible. 
the loaded guns exploding every few minutes, the smoke and heat filling the iron shell, it must have been awful. At times, the gunners couldn't see, all the while, hearing the shells constantly hitting the iron skin, exploding one after another. Temperatures inside the monitor probably reached 120 degrees. After about two hours, the Virginia went into shallower waters and couldn't move. The men of the monitor saw this and knew what to do. They could move their ship into an area that the Virginia couldn't hit and take its time, firing well-aimed shots at will. The men in the Virginia were in a panic and began pushing their boilers way past safety, so much so that they thought they would explode at any minute. Just when the Confederate sailors thought all hope was lost, slowly the CSS Virginia began to move. Both ships realized that firing upon one another was pointless and soon began ramming one another, but this also had no effect. And then the Virginia shot a lucky blow. The shell hit the monitor's pit house. There was a flash of light and smoke began to fill it. William Keeler noticed the captain, John L. Worden, staggering with his hands over his eyes. He asked if he was hurt and the captain responded, my eyes! I am blind! Executive Officer Lieutenant Samuel Dana Green took over, and the monitor returned to the fight. Warden said, Gentlemen, I leave it with you. Do what you think is best. I cannot see, but don't mind me. Save the Minnesota if you can. At this time, Green thought it would be best to retreat for a while and regroup. Virginia saw this and assumed the Monitor was giving up and took it as a victory. And since the Virginia was in such bad shape, the captain thought it was best for the Virginia to retreat as well, even though the Minnesota was still intact. The Virginia wasn't in any condition to go after it now. Of course, when the men of the Monitor saw the Virginia retreating, they took this as a sign of victory as well. Both sides thinking they had won. By noon, March 9th, it was over. Both sides figured they were the winners. The actual winner of the great clash of the ironclads has been debated ever since, and it's still argued today. The bottom line is the age of wooden battleships was over. Gordon Fry pointed out that two years later, the CSS Alabama and the USS Kilsgaard battle would be the last fight between two wooden ships. Neither the Monitor nor the Virginia would make it through the war. In May 1862, as Union troops moved back into Norfolk, and knowing that the Virginia wasn't in any shape to head out into the Atlantic, the Virginia's new captain, flagship officer Joshua Tatnell, reluctantly ordered her destruction in order to keep the ironclad from being captured. On December of that same year, the Monitor would get caught in a storm and being so low to the water's surface, it took in too much water and sank. Sixteen men died. What in God's name is that? That is the test we face. That is the monitor. Set a course to close the monitor. Starboard, ten degrees. Gentlemen, the beast spawned by Satan to destroy the Union. Now we'll find out if John Erickson is a match for the devil. 
Mr. Harmon, stand directly for Merrimack. I want to engage her as far from the Minnesota as possible. Yes, sir. Starboard, 40 degrees. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go, this is one of those shows that just popped into my head. I can't explain why, but one day I just thought of the Merrimack monitor battle and realized I don't know much about it. Those are my favorite shows to write, when it's something I'm truly interested about. One thing Gordon pointed out in his email that didn't make it in today's story was the use of privateers during the Civil War. Both sides would basically license people to become, well, pirates, as long as they only attacked enemy vessels. These privateers would attack their opponent's shipping rather than preventing them from making it to or leaving port, like Lincoln's blockade, because, as Gordon told me, there is no money in it from that angle. Again, Gordon's words are available for your reading pleasure on the Coffee with Jeff website. A link to it will be in today's show notes. But whatever, how about the ending credits? You know, it costs money to run a podcasting network, and uh, we at SciCon could use your help with some of those costs. You can find out how you can help us by going to our Patreon page. Just go to SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? Have you ever wondered what's going on in the geek world? You can find out daily with SciCon's Geek Days podcast. You can find this and other SciCon shows over at SciCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, feel free. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Story ideas are always welcome, and you can leave them at any of those places. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars or something. Those really help. And links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to Gordon and Nancy Fry for helping with this episode, to my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks, everybody. I'll be back in two weeks. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black he once tried it with some cream didn't like it now he never looks back coffee with jeff coffee coffee with jeff coffee with jeff coffee coffee with jeff met a girl from being